Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24, with highlights from our studios here in Midori House and from around the world. This week, we speak with the mayor of Tirana. Well, there's been a few initiatives from mayors to rally uh, to the support of Ukrainian mayors. Now, clearly, cities are not military establishments. We can't send rockets or weapons. So well, what can cities do to stand up? We figure, well, look, if you're going to troll a superpower, might as well do it big. So it started as an idea to sort of make a point and say cities at least can take a stand. Plus, Audrey Morrissey, the executive producer of the upcoming American Song Contest. There was a very conscious effort to make sure that all the songs captured everything, that it really represented everything that the country has to offer. I think we all could use something beautiful and uplifting to rally around, and there's nothing better than great music to bring people together. All that and much, much more in the next hour, here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, it is not presently easy or indeed justifiable to scrape together much in the way of sympathy for Russian diplomats, who currently find their fences daubed in graffiti, their social media feeds an unceasing torrent of jeering memes, the soundtrack to the working day's clamorous protest. For some, it is even rougher than that, as they are compelled to alter business cards and office stationery, not necessarily to their advantage, as some cities, including so far Riga, Oslo and Vilnius, changed the street names on which Russian missions are situated. Earlier this week, Monaco's Andrew Muller joined the mayor of a city that has made such a move, Arion Veliai, mayor of Tirana, whose map has now been joined by Free Ukraine Street. What was the thinking behind this? Let's find out. Well, there's been a few initiatives from mayors to rally to the support of Ukrainian mayors. Now, clearly, cities are not military establishments. We can't send rockets or weapons. I just happened to be twice last fall in Ukraine, one to address the association of mayors where I met and also became friends with a lot of the mayors there. And then I went on a bilateral visit to see Mr. Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, and he was supposed to come this year for Tirana being the European youth capital. And all of a sudden, the war changed everything. Now, coming from Albania, uh, we grew up with this better dead than red because Albania, although a communist country, broke up with the Soviet Union in 1961. Many of us grew up watching submarine movies because Albania hosted the only Soviet submarine station, naval base in the Mediterranean at the time. So little Albania picking up a fight with uh, the Soviet Union at its height was a lot of our storytelling when we were growing up. And having just visited Ukraine, so well, what can cities do to stand up? And we figure, well, look, if you're going to troll uh, a superpower, might as well do it big. <laughs> um, so it started as an idea to sort of make a point and say cities at least can take a stand. I mean, I remember uh, the war in Kosovo. It started initially by calling the freedom fighters and Kosovars terrorists. And I used to live in Kigali in Rwanda, where it started by calling the Tutsis cockroaches. And of course, you know, the Ukrainians uh, were being called Nazis to prepare for this war. So for many of us, some of these memories are way too fresh, particularly what happened with Serbia and Kosovo. And by coincidence, the Serbian, Kosovar, Ukrainian and Russian embassies are all in this embassy row. 
And because this became a site of protest, calling it a free Ukraine street became part of a trend in many cities, mostly uh, in the Baltics, but also across Europe to basically remind Russian diplomats that they live and work in a free Ukraine street. It's only a matter of time before it becomes a reality in Ukraine itself. But by um, waging this symbolic battle for public opinion, I think it's also a reminder to the Russian diplomats that this is not going unnoticed. This is not just a little Dagestan or a little Chechnya that can sort of be closed within a few days and very little attention. And after Crimea platform where Albania was very uh, active and the mayors were very active, but also now by coincidence, Albania is member of the Security Council in the UN. And we and the United States are the co-authors or the co-pen writers, as they call it in UN language, of anything on Ukraine. So I think little Albania all of a sudden is so not only following with deep attention, but also one of the first countries to send trailers and trucks and to get the local population reminiscing on the days when we were the little guy being bullied by the Russians. So I think for more than one reason, it resonates a lot. Have you had any response from the Russian diplomats at all? Do you know if they have started wearily reprinting their business cards? Mail will only go to the free Ukraine street. And uh, I think the only thing we heard from the Russians is they're looking for another location for their embassy. <laughs> uh, mind you, mind you, you know, we can easily name other streets. You can't escape this by changing an address. I think the only way you escape this is by just quitting this uh, damn war. So uh, I don't think that's a smart solution. And, uh, you know, they could rent out all the space in Tirana for all I care. There will always be a free Ukraine street wherever they go. That's not the point. For you personally, did this feel like a bit of a throwback to your pre-politics days as a as an activist and prankster leading the movement Miaft? Of course, this is, you know, urban guerrilla tactics. Clearly, it resonates where, you know, in the days where many of us started as activists doing uh, street theatre and protests, mocking politicians. Actually, I remember the same time we started, Miaft, in 2003, our big partners were the same kids who were doing the Orange Revolution in Ukraine and the people who were doing the Rose Revolution in Georgia. So hanging out with our pals from Kiev and Tbilisi during our activist years, and we sort of thought we did it. You know, the, the revolution was successful with taking away Shevardnadze in Georgia and taking away Kuchma in Ukraine. We deposed the previous government here. So we thought those days were far gone. Uh, well, apparently not. And uh, what we saw in Ukraine is that you can't take democracy for granted. And for a country which was the North Korea of Europe until 1990, 1991, like Albania, we've learned that lesson uh, very well. I mean, people were excited to kick out the Nazis and then to get a regime that, like uh, communists, who ended up being also picking up fights with all the other communists and becoming the only isolated and atheist country in the world. Many people, especially my generation, who was the last generation to remember those years, feel very sensitive about. And just finally, you were here at Midori House not long ago talking about the generous welcome that Tirana had extended to refugees from Afghanistan. Do you anticipate a similar response from Albania and from Tirana to refugees from Ukraine, especially if, as seems likely, and I know there's there's been protests about rising fuel prices in Tirana, especially if this conflict starts to make life directly more difficult for people in Albania? First, we already had 2,000 families already sign up 
to open their doors to potential Ukrainian refugees. Later tonight, I will be announcing an initiative with several other cities, but you know, I'll go first in uh, Tirana to get cities, large cities like ours, you know, a million and above, to commit to having at least one percent of their population as a target to welcome refugees. If cities commit to at least one percent, it gives people at least a sense in who's opened and what the capacities to host these refugees are. You know, it's very sad because our largest, fastest growing tourism market was Ukrainians from two countries that had nothing to do with each other. We had two or three flights a day for at least six months last year because of a boom in uh, the tourism uh, business from the Ukrainian uh, community. So people already know each other. They've made friends. They've gotten along. They've realized how similar they are. You know, Albanians discovered that we have an Albanian minority in Ukraine that was kicked that way during the Ottoman years when people were fleeing Christian Albania at the time. And all of a sudden, these guys were preserving the, the language and tradition for 500 years in, in Ukraine. So there's been a lot of chemistry between us. And I think the people that we waved goodbye last summer uh, as holiday goers, being now seen as refugees, it's painful, but at least a very easy transition to make. This week was also confirmed that an astronaut from the United States will now be returning to Earth after fears his Russian lived home might not materialize. It was thought that Mark van der Heij might be left behind on the International Space Station because of heightened tensions over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Let's get the latest now with the space scientist and author Dr. David Whitehouse. The space station has, until now, been able to override the politics back on the ground. There are signs that this might be changing, but I think that at the moment, the contracts that the United States has with the Russian Space Agency uh, are holding. The, uh, there's a Russian component of the space station which fired to boost its orbit on Saturday. Um, there are various other commitments to the space station that uh, seem to be going ahead. Although I do understand that NASA has put together a tiger team to investigate the possibility of how to decouple the Russian components from the International Space Station and what its future would be after that. So although, as I said, the space station has been immune from terrestrial politics for a long time and will do so in the near future, its long-term implications have yet to be decided. At the same time, David, I'm curious to hear what you thought about the threat by the head of Russia's space agency, Dmitry Rogozin. He said that Russia would crash the ISS onto the surface of the United States because of all the criticism Russia is receiving. Rogozin has been, how can I put this diplomatically, he's been antagonistic, he's been irresponsible, he's been very inaccurate and he has upset a great many people, and he's been making claims that are just fantastic and rather stupid. Um, so it remains to be seen how NASA and the European Space Agency and Japan, uh, part of the international consortium that run the space station, are going to continue to work with the Russian Space Agency when he made claims about bringing it down um, over the United States. Somebody pointed out that actually the International Space Station flies over Russia more often than it does the United States. So it's, it's, it's a strange situation where you seem to have this rogue element shooting his mouth off, making claims that are practically no use to anybody. 
David, just finally to you, one more question. I'm wondering, what does the future look like when it comes to all that international collaboration taking place in space okay. exploration? Okay. Apart from the space station, it's disastrous. There's been seismic changes. The uh, launch of Western satellites from Russia has stopped. Um, the launch of the ExoMars Mars rover, which is due to go up from Russia later this year, can only happen once every two years. That's been stopped. There are various other scientific and commercial satellites which are now no longer going to work. Space agencies are not working with Russia. Scientists and universities have terminated uh, employment and contracts for building. This, apart from the space station, and who knows what's going to happen to that in the future, there has been a seismic change in international cooperation with Russia on space. That's another example of how everyone is really losing in this war. Yes. You're listening to the curator Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The war in Ukraine has brought human suffering to an unimaginable scale and also a debate about the role that racism plays even in war. Monaco's news editor Chris Chermak caught up with David Francis, the foreign minister of Sierra Leone, on the sidelines of last week's Antalya Diplomacy Forum in Turkey to ask his view of the war in Ukraine and allegations of racism. The war or the crisis in Ukraine only exposes in a very dramatic way the virulent racism It may not be that the Ukrainians are racist, but when you see the state authorities, the Ukrainian state authorities, the police, border guards, discriminating against Africans, against Asians, against Latinos, these are people protected by international human rights law. And it is this responsibility of the state to protect people fleeing from war. So here is a situation where We have evidence now, it's very clear on social media. There are border guards, security officials are actually discriminating against Africans. That should not happen in the context of war. But what that does is that it creates the perception of a global understanding that, well, the president of the Russian Federation, President Putin said that he is in Ukraine to denazify Ukraine from right-wing extremists. You may disagree with it. You may fundamentally disagree with it. But when you see Ukrainian state officials discriminating against blacks, Asians, Latinos, who are fleeing from bombs and bullets and war, then you begin to wonder whether, in fact, President Putin was saying the right thing. Because he said it even before the war. And now we see it in the war happening. I'm afraid these are some of the complexities of this war. The war produces this kind of very difficult understanding and appreciation of issues. But then again, what we have here is the dialogue of the deaf. There are some people No matter what you saw in the audience, for example, somebody who has not been in Ukraine, 
is actually challenging the fact that Ukrainians are not racist. They have not been discriminated. When there's overwhelming evidence on social media, overwhelming evidence by those who have been victims of this racism, Africans, Asians and Latinos saying they have been discriminated against, the African Union wrote formally to the European Union. They have raised it formally, but yes, still, people are in denial. That is the challenge to end racism. When some people take an ostrich approach and bury their head in the sand and they don't want to see the reality, then racism will always be with us. And this is the challenge even of the war, the war in Ukraine. That some are saying yes, that this is an unprovoked attack on Ukraine. To a very large extent, the attack on Ukraine is a breach of international law in terms of state sovereignty and territorial integrity. It's in breach of the UN Charter itself. But having said that though, the fundamental security concerns of the Russian Federation have been consistently been promoted, have been consistently been announced, but there are some people who just want to ignore it. Well, that's how war starts. When you fail to acknowledge, you fail to recognize, you fail to empathize, you fail to even validate, you fail to even legitimize the security concerns or the fears of other people, then you have a war on your hand. That's how war starts. But anyway, that's the reality. It's David Francis, Sierra Leone's foreign minister, in conversation with Monocle's Chris Chermak on the sidelines of the Antalya Diplomacy Forum. Um, Rebecca, he was referring there to stories which emerged in the early days of the refugee exodus from Ukraine of non-white Ukrainians attempting to leave Ukraine or non-white residents of Ukraine being treated remarkably differently um, from white people trying to leave Ukraine. That kind of thing... It's easy to see how that might have touched a nerve when shown on African television. Yeah, well, the problem's this. Um, I've got African friends who studied in the Soviet Union and encountered racism from Russians on a daily basis. So I, I um, think, you know. yeah, I think President Vladimir Putin's own credentials on this front are, are shaky. Yeah, well, over, you know, over the weekend, um, I had conversations with a friend of mine who is a Yazidi survivor of uh, the Islamic State genocide against her ethnic group, as well as a, 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 a Cameroonian and a Sudanese. And all three of them were saying, and the Yazidi was actually in tears, was saying, what is it about us that is less human? Mm. Why, don't you, why didn't you care the way, you know, you obviously do, you being white people, uh, you know, Caucasian, us, the West... The way you obviously do um, about the Ukrainians. And, of course, I tried to say, well, this is a simple case of good and evil, so it's much easier for people to understand, as they did with the Afghans, actually, um, mm. as well. Um, but, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> you think about that. If you are that Yazidi and your race was being eliminated and there was virtually no interest in what was happening to them, or you're a Darfuri, 
uh, you know, and, and, you know, you're still fighting a war on the streets of Khartoum against the military junta who have taken over yet again in Sudan, and there is virtually no media attention about this. And your people have been dying for three decades in a struggle against the Islamists that we claim we, we care about. Or you're a Cameroonian, you know, an Anglophone Cameroonian, you know, and the British is your former colonial uh, boss, and the government here cares so little about your struggle to defend your right to learn A-levels and O-levels or the English common law system that the, the, the UK government, instead, instead of ever defending the Anglophones, signs a, a trade deal with Cameroon so that we can buy literally 200 million pounds worth of bananas a year from them that's that's you know our level of values so it's it's embarrassing is is what i would say and i encounter this implicit racism um you know quite often in in rwanda for instance where we have a project where we uh train local survivors of the genocide to be trauma counsellors to help people with post-traumatic stress mm. disorder. And whenever I am trying to raise money for this, which I'm trying to do all the time, uh, the number of people who say to me, ah, oh, but the Rwandan genocide, that was, that was years ago. Surely they've got over it by now. Um, and there are two aspects to that. First, the fascinating idea, especially when it's an American, and I say, the Civil War was 150 years ago. How are you getting over that? <laughs> you know, those Confederate symbols and George Floyd and all that. But the other aspect, unfortunately, uh, and, you know, it isn't just Ukrainians who are guilty of this. It's as if my Rwandans who are dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, they're not quite as human as we are. And so their suffering is, you know, they're not as complicated psychologically is, is, is what the message is. Uh, and this, you know, it, it leaves me despairing, really. Um, how, do you, how do you prove that these people feel as much pain when they watch their child die? As, as we do. Vincent, early in the coverage uh, of this, there were a few uh, television correspondents in particular who got rinsed for saying that this doesn't seem like the sort of thing that would happen in Europe, which, aside from anything else, does suggest they haven't read a great deal of European history. This kind of thing happens in Europe pretty much all the time. Um, but should we have learned something by now about... Um, you know, assigning at least equal value to conflicts and the victims thereof, or trying to argue it from the other side where this specific case is concerned? Is this a thing where you can argue that Ukraine is objectively a bigger deal because of the extra stakes in play? This is a war involving a somewhat unpredictable, volatile nuclear-armed superpower. It does have, as we were discussing earlier, the the potential to spread. I mean, it's it's clearly a huge story, but does that necessarily mean it is being disproportionately covered compared to how, say, Darfur or the Yazidi people or indeed Yemen has been quite a common com point of comparison made as well? I'm just going to separate two things out there. I think the first thing is I think we need to cut these reporters a little bit of slack. Mm. And one of them I know in particular, you know, she is uh, Lucy Watson of ITV News. She's a great reporter. She's an incredible person. She's, she's a very nice woman. And what, 
you know, this comment that she made, a 10-second line in a two-hour live program in which they were repeatedly mm. coming back to her, has been pulled out of all context by people sitting comfortably overseas. And I really feel like unless you have done live television or radio broadcasting, even anywhere, then you can't comment. And unless you've done it in a war zone, you need to cut these people some slack. Because what you don't see is that they've gone into a country for an you know indefinite period of time. They've left their family behind. They're not just trying to do their work, which day-to-day reporting is incredibly hard. Filming and doing TV is hard. They're doing it in a story completely evolving all the time, without security, you know, they are doing lives around the clock. They're exhausted. They also have people telling them in the ear, oh, you've got 10 seconds left or the lo- we think the link's going down, whatever it is. I really feel like can we just stop beating up so much on a lot of these reporters trying to do their best in difficult circumstances while there is a mad tyrant raining bombs down around them. I feel like there's a little bit of misplaced anger here towards the journalists, you know, from a man who you know, who are there trying to cover a man committing what has widely been seen now as international war crimes, who also loves to kill journalists in his own country. So let's not be so hard on them because they've got a bloody tough job and there are not many people that will go there and do it. I think, though, on the second point, you say, look, there is this thing that you learn about in journalism school, which is a kind of nexus of news. You have Mm. your local news, you have your national news, and you have your international news. The really interesting thing about news websites is that we can actually see what people do. We can see what they watch, and we can see what they listen to, and we can see what they see. And the thing they click on least is the international news. Unless it's something big and new, they don't click on those tabs for that news. The local news gets a good uptake still, and national news, people click on that. But if you look at, you know, the BBC website has a what's, you know, number one, number 10. The story that is often number one on just the UK home news page is not number one on what people are clicking on. So part of it is down to what people engage with in their own behaviours. And that decision, and we can see, you know, news programmes get minute by minute ratings. We can see through a programme what people watch, what people tune off for, what people come back and watch at the end of the programme. And we can see that and that affects budgets and that affects how the news is covered and what can be covered and what can be done. So... Whilst people are saying, oh, you're only you're only paying attention to it when it's in the news, it's because, well, you're not interested in it when we're reporting on, say, trying to set up something to, uh, you know, to negotiate between Francophone and Anglophile Cameroonians. You're not interested in that story. You're only clicking on it when you're seeing big bangs and that's it. So there is a bit of navel gazing, I think, that news consumers have to do about this as well. I, I think I, I think that's very true, and I think it's uh, it's it's the slightly depressing thing, Rebecca, that the the internet has taught us, as we now know exactly what people are reading. I think I can remember back in olden times, and I, I wrote a few of those five thousand word foreign reportage pieces for the Sunday Sunday supplements myself, um, and you could delude yourself that everybody's going, "Wow, fantastic! Five thousand words on Bosnia, amazing! I'm totally going to read that." And now, of course, we now realise that, oh, nobody was. Yeah, but, you know, I take your point entirely, uh, you know, about how most people are not interested in international news unless it's spectacular and it bleeds. But, you know, we always underestimate the capacity of the British people, certainly, to respond 
Um, you know, I, I'm involved in a church group here in London who've been helping Afghans. It has been incredible, the number of people, um, you know, who are not, you know, Guardian reading, you know, watching, you know, reading everything about foreign news, who they respond on a human level and they are already responding to Ukraine. And, you know, it's not the vast number. I don't think we should look at huge numbers of people following this news. It's about a small number of people being motivated enough to really care and therefore do something. And it's always been like that. There is this myth about how in the 60s, you know, there was this greater mm. consciousness about stuff. Rubbish. It's always <laughs> been a small number of people who were out there campaigning against apartheid South Africa or whatever. And what matters to me and what hearten, or what I find heartening is, is um, you know, the British people, and I'm sure Americans and Canadians and Australians and New Zealanders are always ahead of their politicians in terms of empathy. We move on now to the classic food neighborhoods. And this time we'll have a soup recipe from Toronto by an award-winning Canadian food writer and cookbook author. Hello, I'm Amy Rosen, author of Kosher Style, and I want to tell you about a delicious, easy, nutritious, and nostalgic soup called split pea and noodle soup. This is my take on a recipe from one of Toronto's oldest restaurants called United Baker's Dairy Restaurant, over 100 years old. So they have this split pea soup that I've recreated at home, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. All you do is to a large pot, you add a tablespoon of olive oil, you heat it up over medium heat, you add a medium chopped onion and let that brown for about five minutes. Then you add a couple garlic cloves, stir it around for another minute, add six cups of vegetable or chicken stock, bring it to a boil, and then add a cup of dried green split peas. Make sure you pick them through to make sure there's no little stones in there. So we bring that to a boil, we add a large carrot that's been peeled and chopped, a bay leaf, and then salt and pepper to taste. We let it cook over a simmer, a low heat, covered for one and a half hours. So you just walk away. After that time, you remove the bay leaf, you let the soup cool slightly, and then you puree it either in a blender or with an immersion blender. And then you add a cup of dried spaghetti, broken up into little pieces, stir it in, bring the heat up to a boil again, let it cook for 10 to 12 minutes or until the noodles are al dente, and then you remove it from the heat, stir in a cup of chopped fresh dill, and you're done. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Time now for Foreign Desk Explainer. And this time, influential Western individuals, companies and governments are busy loudly decrying Russia, packing up their businesses and slamming the door behind them. 
while deftly opening new ones in Saudi Arabia, Venezuela and Borduria, probably. Andrew Muller explains that while morality is free, acting on it has a price. This snapshot. Here's a clue to end all clues. It's Carl, the stuntman! Since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine three weeks ago, it is extraordinary how many individuals, corporations and indeed countries have suddenly noticed that President Vladimir Putin was running some sort of dangerous, repressive, corrupt and revanchist gangster state and have solemnly forsworn having anything further to do with the place. We have seen several indignant resignations by non-Russian journalists employed by RT and similar Putinist propaganda outlets. These are always fun, akin to someone quitting Vatican Radio upon horrified realisation that some sort of sinister pro-Pope agenda was afoot. We have witnessed a stampede for the exits by multinational companies long operational in Russia, for whom invading some of Ukraine was apparently fine, but invading all of it is apparently not. And we have seen the sanctioning of Russian oligarchs and entities by Western governments who seem to have just now started wondering how many altogether honest billions have been made in Russia while Putin's racket has operated. Roman Abramovich is a Russian billionaire. His wealth dates back to the collapse of the Soviet Union, a time when new Russian companies assumed state assets. It is obviously way, way too early and far, far too tempting of the fates to start prospecting for silver linings in the cloud overhanging Central Europe. If Russia's rampage stopped tomorrow, it would still have been a crime at least as grotesque as any committed in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia is guilty of a war crime after a maternity and children's hospital was bombed in the besieged southern city of Mariupol. Ukrainian officials say three people were killed, including a child. And the chances of it continuing for some while yet, or extending beyond Ukraine's borders, are currently non-zero. But it might have been hoped that if the last three weeks had taught us, for which read the baffled, affronted democratic world, anything, it might have been a brisk lesson in the ultimate folly of doing significant business with those who, to put it tactfully, do not necessarily share what we are pleased to call our values. Here, as in most other respects where Ukraine is concerned right now, the high hoisting of hopes would be ill-advised. As of this broadcast, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in Saudi Arabia, run by a regime which is actually significantly worse than even Russia's in many key respects. To tick off just a few highlights, just this past Saturday, Saudi Arabia executed 81 people, many on altogether dubious grounds. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is personally culpable, according to US intelligence reports, for the 2018 murder and 
and dismemberment of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Saudi Arabia has for more than seven years been waging a brutal and ludicrous war in Yemen, not any less brutal or ludicrous than Russia's in Ukraine, and Saudi Arabia continues to maintain a sort of gender-based apartheid. Uh, this is quite unbelievable what is happening now in, uh, in our continent. And we need to make sure that we build the strongest, widest possible uh, coalition uh, to ensure that Vladimir Putin does not succeed. The United States, meanwhile, earlier this month sent three officials on an unannounced mission to Caracas to meet Nicolas Maduro, president of Venezuela. Again, to keep it brief, Maduro is a thug and a crook and a probable lunatic who has immiserated and terrified Venezuela's people to the extent that five and a half million of them, nearly a fifth of the population, have fled. More to the point, the United States is one of a long list of countries which doesn't even recognise Maduro as the legitimate president, since he rigged the last election with such shamelessness and ineptitude that even the most grizzled realpolitik pragmatist could not acknowledge the result with a straight face. Neither of these meetings have been organised, you may well have guessed by now, so that the representatives of the democratic world can tell these grotesque tyrants to their faces that we have at last learned our lesson about the length of spoon handle that should be employed whilst supping with devils, and that we therefore will no longer do business with them until such time as they get with the programme. Which is to say that the actual and threatened forswearing of Russian oil and gas we have heard from some quarters, and or the assumption that Russia is going to switch off the pipes anyway, does necessitate figuring out some other means of keeping the free world's lights on and homes warm. Boris Johnson is hoping to persuade Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to increase Saudi Arabia's production of oil and gas. The US has re-engaged with Venezuela largely because Venezuela has even more oil than the Saudis do, although under present sanctions occasioned by Maduro's malfeasances, Venezuela is not permitted to trade it on the US market. As recently as 2019, the US was Venezuela's best customer. The more subtle subplot here may be an effort by the US to prize off one of Russia's few remaining allies. Both these outreaches have prompted an amount of backlash and not unreasonably. At a moment when much of the democratic world has taken a commendable stand against one malevolent regime, it is at the very least undignified to go importuning to two others. But maybe voters should pause mid-harumph to ponder on whose behalf this cynicism is being perpetrated. A quick disengagement from Russian energy would not be easy. The governments of the US, UK and other democracies understand that their voters are outraged over what is occurring in Ukraine, but they will wonder correctly how sustainable that outrage will prove if it starts necessitating actual discomfort. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Very excited for next week, where the American Song Contest will debut on Monday. Uh, this week, I had the pleasure to speak with Audrey Morrissey, the executive producer of the show. She tells me more about it. The truth is, I, of course, knew of it. If you work in the music business, even just a little bit, you know of it. But 
I mean, I have to admit, I truly didn't understand the full scope and really what it meant and how long it's been running. And so obviously after I signed up to do this show, I did a little bit of a deep dive and the Swedish producers that have come over to bring this format over have been wonderful. They've been just such great partners teaching me all about it and really been a wonderful aid in helping mount this show here. And I think the interesting thing, especially for the U.S. market, that is a different type of competition. I mean, you've worked yourself with The Voice, which is a brilliant, incredibly successful show. But that's kind of a different context, right? Because you'll be now state against state. So it's quite exciting to see how the U.S. will react, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the two big things are, one, it's really a professional platform. These are for pros. These are for people who are committed to making music their life's work and what they do. And two, this state, interstate, interterritory competition is something very new for us. We really don't have much outside of politics. So this is a little different and a chance for people to get out their state pride. Well, talking about state pride, which state are you, are you from actually? I mean, who will be representing uh, your state? <laughs> well, I'm very happy to report I'm from Connecticut originally and Michael Bolton is representing my state. So I'm feeling really good about Connecticut in this competition. One thing that is quite interesting, Audrey, because, you know, I've been watching Eurovision for years, but the format, of course, there's some tweaks here and there. So, for example, it will be quite spread out, the show, right? So will it be for eight weeks, correct? It will be for eight weeks. Um, yeah, it'll be once a week for eight weeks, but the show is in three phases. We have the qualifiers, which will be the first five weeks, where we will cycle through all 56 artists and songs participating and competing. Then we move to two weeks of our semifinals. We'll cut from 56 to 22. And then after those two weeks, we'll move on to the grand final where we will have 10 finalists. I have to congratulate you on the choice of hosts. I think it's such an interesting combo, Kelly Clarkson and Snoop Dogg. Every great song has its own kind of vibe just like the streets they come from. Now all that music from across America will go head to head on one stage. I think they're both quite charismatic in a way. Uh, and, and even I read from Kelly Clarkson in an interview she gave that, you know, even in the US, which, you know, some say it's a divided country, I think this show, it's, it's almost helpful in that sense as well, right? I completely agree. I think we all could use something beautiful and uplifting to rally around. And there's nothing better than great music to bring people together. Of course, I haven't listened to the tracks yet. I think they will be released in batches. So was there a concern to make sure that every kind of, not every single genre, but there will be, you know, country, hip hop, genres that are very, you know, familiar in the United States? Yes, there was a very conscious effort to make sure that all the songs, this sort of group of songs for this first season, captured everything, that it really represented everything 
that the country has to offer. So you'll see a very balanced set list with genre, with age, with gender, with diversity, everything. We've really been very attentive and thoughtful about that. But by the way, at the end of the day, the music has to be great. So that's first and foremost. We have to have great music, deserving songs and artists and the best we can possibly have. And then also make sure that everyone's represented. And, and I think we took great lengths. And I think that shows in the fact that we're not including only this 50 states, but the territories and the District of Columbia. You're listening to The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monaco 24. And now, Simone Le Amon, Curator of Contemporary Design and Architecture at the National Gallery of Victoria, reflects on the importance of regional showcases of design talent. It was about six years ago that NGV won a tender with the Victorian government to deliver what is uh, Melbourne Design Week. And I guess we went from being a curatorial department that was focused on delivering exhibitions and building what was the first collection of contemporary design and architecture for the NGV into this extraordinary community outreach (laughs) project, Mm. which was called Design Week. The department at NGV has been a long time coming. I mean, Melbourne is known for having an extraordinary design community. It's strong architecture, product design, urban landscape. I mean, it's extremely diverse and layered, complex design community. And the industry itself, too, is fairly unique because of the history and uh, and I guess how it's evolved over the latter half of the 20th century. But really, you know, Design Week was an opportunity to really demonstrate that um, everything we do at the NGV is about trying to provide opportunity and to really bring the creativity and the smarts and the capacity of our design community to the attention of a broad public audience. Mm. And so Melbourne Design Week is that platform, but it's also had this extraordinary effect of galvanizing what was a very disconnected design community. There's a lot of creativity in the city, but I'd love Mm. to hear from someone who's kind of on the ground and working in the field every day, how design does shape life in Melbourne in a positive way and then how the Design Week reflects that. Full disclosure, I'm a design practitioner uh, that moved into the area of curating and mainly because I saw a distinct lack of engagement or conversational discourse around the contributions of the design sector. And I often uh, reflected upon how design is cultural production as much as it is contributing to our economy, also defining how we wanna live and what we wanna have in our company. But as we understand, it also shapes the way that we think. And so it's incredibly, incredibly powerful and uh, being surrounded by so many creatives that worked in this field, I always felt that design at large flew under the radar 
and so hence you know moving from practice into curating was a really deliberate move so in many ways you know the joy or what I see the role and certainly with my colleagues you know at the gallery we feel very passionately in that we are advocates and champions of the local community and of course the Melbourne design community is also distinguished by many interlopers from all around the country and certainly during design week it's not only a celebration or a presentation of what's happening in the city but it's now become sort of Australia's leading and largest design event. When you think about collectible design internationally, you might want to visit a fair like uh, Art Basel Design Miami, or you know visit a, an interesting gallery in Paris or Belgium. Uh, maybe not Melbourne, but obviously you guys have some good stuff happening down there. I'd love to know about the contemporary design scene and and how this design fair is going to showcase this. I should say, you know, Australian designers, you know, have been travelling to those great design mm. fairs for many, many decades and have lamented that there is nothing in our own region. Of course, presenting, exhibiting and sort of fostering a a global market for the work that you do is very, very important. But it's very sad when it's not celebrated, recognised or uh, supported at home. And so I guess on the back of the year on success of Melbourne Design Week, where we have gone from perhaps a dozen exhibitions to nearly over a hundred exhibitions in the program for 2022, where we see limited edition, unique, one-off and rare serial production being presented by you know people that are trained perhaps more conventionally in the, in the field of industrial design mm. but also designer makers here in Australia we have such a strong heritage of craft and design councils supporting the careers of designer makers and contemporary craftspeople so we've seen over this past, I guess, decade especially, a real merging of, I guess, designers coming from different trajectories, different backgrounds, now all producing this production, which is highly, you know, a lot of it's very provocative. It's very challenging. The, the Melbourne Design Fair is sort of a bit of a watershed moment in Australia because it is the first fair of its kind in Australia and it's been a long time coming. We're also really terribly excited because we just, we know the talent. We work with the talent, you know, on a daily basis and, uh, and we're just really excited to see where this fair can take this production into the future. And finally, a highlight of my show, The Stack, a magazine about art and wrestling. It's called Orange Crush. I spoke to the founder, Adam Abdallah. My publication is an annual journal called Orange Crush, the Journal of Art and Wrestling. Orange Crush is not only a soda brand, but also the name of a wrestling move that was coined by a Japanese wrestler named Kenta Kobashi, who's my personally my favorite professional wrestler. So I named it after him. And the mission of the magazine, it's to highlight major artists in the contemporary art world who have utilized and tackled professional wrestling as subject matter or um, as a major event in their own personal 
journey or to highlight young artists who actually exist in professional wrestling culture as photographers, painters, zine makers, etc. So it's kind of bringing together like the highs of the international art world with the, the subcultures of professional wrestling globally. Because of course, besides Orange Crush, you work very much in the world of art, right? Yeah, I'm the, I'm the president and CEO of a company called Cultural Council. We are, a, I would say, a mid-sized communications and marketing agency, really working closely with international museums, philanthropies, foundations, art galleries, as well as like major corporations who are looking to fund things in the contemporary art space. And what about the passion for wrestling? Is this something of, that you used to follow when you were a kid? Yeah, you know, like a lot of uh, kids here in the States, we were raised by TV. And the thing that caught my attention since probably the age of, you know, four or five years old was professional wrestling. When I would go to our local independent uh, video stores, you know, some kids would be going and perusing like the cartoon section. I was drawn instantly to the professional wrestling section, started watching old videos of professional wrestling from, you know, the 70s and 80s and really kind of stuck with me my entire life, you know, and as I've kind of progressed in my professional career, um, which is kind of a pretty stark contrast to, to my personal hobby and interest, it's also allowed me to travel the world. So I've, I've worked and had an opportunity to spend a lot of time in places like Mexico and Japan, where professional wrestling is also very popular and a significant part of sports culture there as well. I love the design of the magazine because I, I was telling you how the magazine is eye-catching. I mean, the use of color. And I think perhaps this very much connects to the world of wrestling as well. There, there, there is an aspect of fun and colorfulness to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I have to give credit to my lovely wife, Susan Globus, who is the creative director of the magazine. Um, she comes from the world of fashion. She was a graphic designer for a number of brands for many years and still works as an active independent graphic designer. And the project kind of manifested as a collaboration between us where I had this idea of bringing together, you know, professional wrestling and all these aspects of the arts. And I, we kind of sat down together and she concepted a lot of the visuals from the way that we do our covers to our layouts. So it's kind of a, it's a family affair, so to speak. This latest issue, Orange Crush Volume 3, actually has three covers. And we always kind of go for a different vibe. Like Volume 2 had a very kind of fashion vibe and aesthetic. This one, I, I think, took a lot of references from kind of um, 90s like fan magazines, like Teen Bee or like The Source, like things, things like that. So we gave kind of a different flavor to each different cover that we released with this issue. Um, with that, taking that inspiration, making it a little more tongue-in-cheek than maybe some of our previous or our two previous issues. You mentioned there Mexico and Japan. I mean, do you have like fans of the magazine from outside the US? I mean, how, how, how are you trying to kind of market the title? Yeah, we have, first of all, international distribution deal with Antenna Books. So it's a little behind, you know, direct sales, obviously. But we wind up in probably around 40 or 50 independent bookstores throughout Europe. And we our sales have been pretty decent for a very small magazine, but we do have a big following in the UK, Canada, Australia. Um, we have distribution in Japan uh, with Haoming, which is a 
kind of uh, high-end wrestling merch retailer in uh, the Shibuya district. So we do have an international following and we do also utilize artists from around the world as well and incorporate that into our editorial. And I think it stands out as a, as a kind of a, a little bit of a wrestling magazine as well, because I did actually had a look today. Uh, we, I went to a news agent. They had, you know, a few wrestling magazines, but the design is completely different. Perhaps it's a new thing that perhaps someone that might not know very much about the art side of things could be interested as well. Yeah. So, I mean, most professional wrestling magazines are kind of printed in like a tabloid style, you know, similar to like a People magazine and, you know, is really geared towards more of a mass market audience. There have been attempts in the past at like really high end, like $500 to $1,000 hardcover books. Like UFC put out like this crazy book one year that they released at like Art Basel. I wanted to create something that could be a keepsake that could be a coffee table type book for people who both love wrestling or who are interested at the cross section or just the aesthetics of wrestling, but also be accessible. So we're a large format. Each magazine is about uh, an inches, nine and a half by 13 and uh, really high quality paper. So it feels like substantial, but we try to keep the price point relatively, I wouldn't say modest, but like attainable. It's like 25, 25 bucks. And issue three is out now as well, right? People, what's the best way to buy it? Just go to your website, right? The best way to buy it, I would say is orangecrush.art. We service most countries. If we don't have that automatically on the website, you can reach out to me and I can figure it out. But we are also carried in museums like the Perez Art Museum in Miami. In New York, we're carried by Printed Matter uh, in New York, as well as, as I mentioned, like a lot of independent uh, retailers throughout throughout the UK and Europe. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best interviews on Monaco 24. Thanks for listening. <laughs>